invite you to turn to Isaiah 9. The Christmas Child Foretold. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Isaiah is perhaps one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. We know Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest. I would cast my vote for Isaiah being the second greatest. He ministered in a time of Israel's decline. Most of the prophets did. In his, during his ministry, he saw more and more people abandon God, go after other gods, pursue treaties, pursue alliances with other nations. He saw as a consequence of that abandonment of God, he saw people fall into greater and greater sin. He saw his fellows make moral and ethical and spiritual compromise one after the other. So during his reign, especially afterwards, but during his reign, the state of the kingdom was pretty bad. beginning of his reign, the Assyrian conquest of northern Israel had already begun. You you will recall that uh, uh, Israel had split into two kingdoms, two halves, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judea after Solomon died. And the, uh, the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom had already begun. And within a, few, within a few short years, a very short amount of time, remember that armies didn't have uh, uh, C-10s, uh, massive planes to, to move the, their troops and their cargoes. They had to march into a territory to conquer it. So it took some time for them to reach Judea. But soon, by the time you get to Isaiah 35, 185,000 Assyrian troops would be standing in formation outside Jerusalem's walls, demanding King Hezekiah turn over the king keys to the kingdom. It was a time where people no longer feared the Lord. Instead, they feared man. And their desperation betrayed their willingness to make ethical compromise, moral compromise, spiritual compromise if that meant gaining allies, if that meant putting something in your tool belt, some, something that you could use to bolster your strength, make friends and allies among men and kings that God said you have no business making treaties with. They can't save you. And it's the same thing today, widespread ethical compromise, widespread moral and spiritual compromise. We see this outside the church. We see this inside the church. So I hope you can see that what was going on in Isaiah's time, the struggle that Isaiah and the believing remnant of Jews in his day, the message for them is applicable and just as relevant for us today. Standing for truth, trying to be faithful to God, that in today's day and age, that can bring a reproach on you. You will be unpopular. You will be ridiculed. Your business could suffer. Your relationships could and will suffer. And there will be times, beloved, when you are all alone. It is the quiet of night. You are by yourself. And you may wonder if waiting upon the Lord and if remaining faithful, if striving to remain 
faithful and to have fidelity before him, you, you will wonder and you will ask yourself, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Isaiah says here, and throughout his book, but here he says unashamedly, yes, it is, <laughs> it is worth it. Whatever gloom, whatever cultural quagmire you may find yourself in, which, whatever whatever despair and distress and darkness God's people ever find themselves in, Isaiah 9, 1 through 11 reminds us of God's glorious promise of a glorious future will accompany the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We can divide our text from Isaiah 9 into three headings. Verses 1 and 2 is the promised light. The promised light. Verses 3 through 5 is the promised liberation. And verses 6 and 7, the promised lad. The light, the liberation, the lad. Isaiah says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's look at the promised light that Isaiah comforts the believing remnant with. He says in verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. And that alludes to the gloom in which Israel was not already not knee-deep, but waist-deep in. And just look back at chapter 8, verse 21 and 22, and Isaiah is describing this. He says, they will be hard-pressed. They will be famished. They will be hungry. They will be enraged. They will curse their king and their God as they face upward. Sounds kind of like people today, doesn't it? These are people who find absolutely no comfort when they look upward to God because 
you have to ask yourself, what motive? What's the incentive? Why are they looking up? Are they looking up with, with faithful anticipation? Are they looking up with humility? No, these are a people who are looking up with arrogance and self-serving motives. These are a people who approach God only when they want something from God, when, when God can serve them, when God can meet their needs. Oh, they'll entreat God then. But when it's time for them to render service to God, they ain't got time for that. They approach God only when they want something from God, and when God doesn't deliver what they want, when God doesn't cater to their whims, they become offended at God. How, how dare he deny us? That, doesn't, doesn't the Lord know who we are? Their offense turns to rage, and Isaiah says they shift their gaze. They, they don't look vertically towards heaven. They now look horizontally towards their fellow man and neighbor in foreign kings. Verse 22 says they look to the earth. And they will form councils and they will find their experts. They will form their brain trusts and their think tanks. They will form alliances of men. They will propose man's solutions that they have fabricated out of man's intuition. They will execute it with man's wisdom. And the result will be the same every time man trusts in princes and governments and gets swept up in the spirit of the age. What, is it, what does verse 22 say is the result? Behold, distress, darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Does that sound like our culture today? I would just say, look at any country that has thrown off the yoke of God's word. Look at China. Look at Russia. Look at North Korea. That's our future. Should we persist in running away from the Lord? That time of distress, that darkness, that gloom, that anguish, which, which started with the Assyrian conquest. Remember, it wiped away the northern kingdom, and it, it became a real burr in Judea's side. God did mercifully spare them. You can see that in uh, Isaiah 36 to 39, I believe. But it started with the Assyrians, and it came to greater fruition in the coming of the Babylonians with their captivity. It was, that was preceded by oppression from the Seleucids. Who were the Seleucids? That was one of the factions that came as a result of uh, Alexander the Great's empire being broken up into four. After the Seleucids came the Romans. We know about their oppression. Add to that the corruption of the, Levitical, of the Levitical priesthood, the establishment of Pharisaical traditions and dead religion that gives no joy, that produces no joy, that cannot lead you to joy, but just the endless cycle of you have to do more to be right with God. No joy in your religion, no freedom in your country. You bet it was a time of dark gloom and anguish. And it began in Isaiah's day. It would only get worse for the next 700 years. That's how far ahead before the time of Christ that Isaiah writes. Seven centuries. So 
It is a time of gloom. Greater gloom is coming. But Isaiah says with a sense of comfort and relief that anguish is not going to last forever. There is a coming time where Israel's anguish, Israel's gloom will come to an end. And he proceeds in verse 1. He says in earlier times, and, and, and when he says this, Isaiah is now, he is looking far into the future and from that future point, from that future, future vantage point, he's now looking back on his current time. And he says that that current time, which was his present and his future, I'm t- messing with time messes with your head. But looking forward, he looks back and says that time of gloom and anguish, that's in the past. God did treat us with contempt. He did treat Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. Where, where is Zebulun and Naphtali? These are the northernmost territory, territories of Israel. They were the first to fall to the Assyrian army. You know, we have paratroopers today. We have airborne troops today that you can just drop with a plane. The armies had to uh, uh, start with the front door, start with the fence, work their way through the lawn. That was uh, Zebulun and Naphtali was the white picket fence of Israel. That was where they first invaded. That was where the nationwide massacre of the northern kingdom started. That was the contempt that was spurned on by centuries of unrepentant sin. You may ask, well, what what did they do? What, What was their sin? Jesus summarizes the law of Moses into two very general, hard to miss statements. Love the Lord your God with everything you have everything you are love your neighbor as you'd want to be loved love god love your neighbor and you assess israel's history did israel faithfully love god with everything they were no they went they disregarded his word they disregarded his law they profaned his temple and his sacrifices they went after other gods they did not do so good at loving god and you may say well then there was also love your neighbor well is you read the accounts of the prophets, and they, they chronicle. They didn't do such a good job at that either. They took advantage of each other. They robbed each other. They extortion. They, uh, uh, yeah, they robbed each other. I don't know how to turn extortion into a verb. Extorted each other. Thank you. That was the contempt. This time of gloom, this time of anguish, the captivity, enslavement to those dirty pig-eating Gentiles, no longer being the prominent apple of the eye such that the whole world could see it. That was no longer their privilege. That was their contempt. But Isaiah says, but, but later on, he being God shall make it, being Zebulun and Naphtali, glorious. Despite acting in judgment for past sin, despite acting (coughs) contemptuously, which was right for God to do, despite acting contemptuously, God will now act gloriously. He will act gloriously. Zebulun and Naphtali, where the Assyrians first invaded, where the contempt was first felt, where it was first undeniable, where it was first seen, 
There, God's glory will be first felt, first seen. It is to the north that the Jews down in Judea, which is where Isaiah is writing from. He's in Judea. He's saying it is to the north that you need to watch. It is to Galilee that you need to fix your gaze. This was a little bit of a stumbling block for the, for the conservative Jew, Judean Jews in the south. And uh, just to emphasize this point, he says, by way of the sea, this is the highway that would run along the Mediterranean coast in Galilee. By way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee, in case you missed it, you Judean Jews, God's light will appear in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, why, why was this exactly uh, scandalous? Why was this a stumbling block for the, for the Jews? Well, Galilee and the northern kingdom was the area inhabited and traversed most by the Gentiles. In the time of Christ, you, you find many Gentile-occupied cities. Herod had his palace. Uh, he had one in Jerusalem, but he had one in Galilee, in Tiberias. Galilee was traversed most by the Gentiles. It was contaminated most by the Gentiles. It was contaminated by pagan influence. It was most susceptible to enemy invasion. Galilee was far away from the fortified and conservative cities in the hills of Judea. If, if Israel is going to turn her future around, if, 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 if uh, Israel is going to grab fate by the, by the horns and steer things into a better uh, circumstances for her. She, if she's going to produce a revival, if she's going to produce a hero, if she's going to make a general, a revolutionary, if she's, who's going to rally the people and fortify the nation, it's not going to, that, that movement is not going to start in backwater Galilee. It's going to start in the capital city where the faithful Judean Jews have lived for generation after generation. And everyone has Jewish names, not Greek names, not Galilean names. If we're going to turn ourselves around, it's going to start here in the south. Isaiah says, no, it's not going to start here. It's going to start in the place you're going to least expect it. North in Galilee of the Goyim. That is where God will work. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness, a.k.a. those in Galilee, they will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, a.k.a. Galilee, the light will shine on them. Now let me ask you something. Is it any coincidence then that Jesus began his public ministry where? Galilee? Remember, after Gabriel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from his sins, Matthew says in Matthew four fifteen to 16 that he went into Galilee. And then he actually quotes this passage in Isaiah. It is in Galilee where the light will shine. It is in Galilee where the light will appear. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he manifested that divine light 
in two ways. First, he, he manifested it. He shone that light symbolically. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught the pure, unpolluted meaning of the scriptures. Not in lofty speech and profound language, but so that blue-collar fishermen could understand. So that the common man, the common people, could learn at his feet and walk away with understanding. He exposed the false shepherds and the false teachers of Israel. He showed the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees for the religious frauds they really were. You recall he called them blind leaders of the blind. He, he said to them in the presence of everybody on the Temple Mount that when you make a proselyte, when you make a successful convert, he becomes twice the son of hell that you ever were. You mean Jesus called out false teachers? You mean Jesus was polemical? Yes. He took the gloom of enslavement to dead religion that can A, never atone for sin, B, never reconcile someone to God, C, never reveal God, and he replaced it with the joy that comes from hearing the sweet, blessed words, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Second Temple Judaism, that, that's, the, that's the technical way that, that we refer to Judaism. Second Temple Judaism never, never, never could tell you your sins are forgiven. Isaiah, uh, uh, Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. No Jew under the temple system could ever have resting, completed faith that his sins were put away. There was always more work to be done. That's a point the writer of Hebrews strives to belabor. He also manifested that divine light quite literally on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, remember, he, uh, he, he, he became exceedingly white. Uh, Matthew says his face shone as the noonday sun. Mark says that his clothes became radiant and exceedingly white. Tide does not have a bleach strong enough to make your garments as white as Jesus' glory was. Luke says he was gleaming. So he quite literally manifested the light of God's glory. Quite literally, those who walked in the deadness, darkness of dead religion and societal slavery, they quite literally saw a bright light. The truth is, Jesus Christ is the great light that appeared 2,000 years ago. And beloved, he is the light that still appears unto men and women walking in darkness every single time the gospel is declared, preached, shared, and given. He is the promised light. The light is not a revolution. The light is not a movement. The light is a person. It is Jesus Christ. He is the light. And with his light, he brings promised liberation. Look at verse 3. Promised liberation. 
Isaiah now turns to God. He addresses God. And he's really speaking to the believing Jews, but for their benefit. God doesn't need to hear this. They need to hear it, but he's addressing God. You shall multiply the nation. As if to emphasize there's no, to, the, to the Jews, to, the, to man, there's nothing you can do. God shall multiply the nation. He says to God, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Now, there's one thing, if you, if you look at history, if you know about Israel's history, there's one thing that we know, and is that they are a people who time and time again were oppressed and killed by foreigners. Pharaoh oppressed and killed Israel. The Philistines did it. The Midianites did it. The Edomites did it. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians did it. The Medo-Persians tried to do it when, with Haman's scheme uh, that, he, that eventually came back on his own neck. They tried to do it. The Seleucids did it. The Romans did it quite frequently. They did it through Pompeii in 67 BC. The Herods did it. Remember in the, in the Christmas story, Herod it, slaughters two dozen infant boys. And there's no, there's outcry from the Jews, but there's no outcry from the Romans. As if it wasn't that big of a deal, as if that happens every year. Pilate did it numerously, massacred Jews. Titus would do it in 70 AD. The Muslims and the Catholics would do it during the Crusades. Hitler did it in World War in the years leading up to World War II. Syria, Jordan, Iran, and who knows how many nations of the UN do it. History has been one long, prolong, one prolonged Holocaust with the Jews being cut down and again and again and again. Yet to counterbalance that. Actually, it does more than counterbalance that. To alleviate that, they have this blessed, enduring promise that God will multiply the nation and God will increase their gladness. They are a people who need to be multiplied. They are a people who need to be made glad. And that word gladness, it, it's joy, extreme happiness, lasting happiness. Isaiah elaborates in verse 3. They will be glad in your presence, which is not wasn't their MO in the Old Testament, which is why they went after other gods as frequently as they did. But they will be glad in your presence. And then Isaiah gives two pictures. The Hebrew language is a very picturesque language. There are two pictures, two metaphors, two... Uh, likenesses of their gladness one is as with gladness of harvest and the other is as men rejoice when they divide the spoil this may come as a shock to you but the storehouse of heaven that is known as costco did not exist in the old world and it was only through hard patient laborious toil sweat and work and toil that you reaped a harvest at the end of the season. 
And when harvest came, especially if it was a bountiful harvest, it was good times. <laughs> and when one nation went to war after another, perhaps because uh, that the, the other nation uh, uh, provoked them or invaded them, and this nation retaliates for whatever reason that the two nations go to war, it is only through striving in battle and coming out victorious that one side has the prerogative or the right to divide the spoils, take home the goods. Not only do you get to go home to your family and rejoice being alive, but you now have booty to take with you. This joy of an abundant harvest, this joy of of victory, is likened to the joy and the gladness that Israel will have when God returns to them favorably and when they see that he has intervened favorably on their behalf. Cliff wants to know, how are they going to intervene? What are they, what, what is, what is God going to do to make Israel glad? Thank you, Cliff. That's a great question. I'm glad you're here to ask that. Verse four. Isaiah answers Cliff, for you shall break the yoke of their burden. And, he, and he, these, are, these are words, these are all tools of enslavement. You, you, you say the word yoke, you say the word rod or staff, and people would know instantly. These people who had been oppressed, been enslaved, they, they know exactly what Isaiah is talking about. God shall break the yoke of their burden tariffs, taxes. And the staff on their shoulders being whipped and beaten for not meeting their quota. You remember in Exodus 1 when the Israel children of Israel were beaten because they didn't meet their quota and then their quota was made even harder and then they were beaten for not beating from not meeting that quota. God's going to break the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressors as at the battle of Midian. Now someone may ask, what is the battle of Midian? And you'll be surprised to know that you, you know what the battle of Midian is. You just don't know that, you know, the battle of Midian is the account of Gideon where he started first with 32,000 troops. That's an impressive number, isn't it? You can do a lot of damage with 32,000 men. That's what he started with. God says that's too much. And probably the, the most ineffective an undesirable way to raise a raise a war effort Gideon says who wants to go home 22,000 people go home he has 10,000 left and that's still too much God showed Gideon by means of who lapped with his hands and who knelt to drink who was going to fight in the war and Gideon was left with only 300 men. And yet he still miraculously won. And Judges 7-2 explains precisely why God did that. He said Israel would become boastful. Israel would say, my own power has delivered me. And that, beloved, is... If you open the hood of every false religion out there, from Judaism to Mormonism to Islam to, to everything. You open up the hood, you will find 
I can deliver myself. My own power can deliver me. Now, from false religion to false religion, God, God kind of gives different degrees of boosts. He may kind of put you a little bit further along on the ledge, but at the, at the end of the day, in the final analysis, the power is in man's hand to save self. And that can be seen through good works, through self-abasement, asceticism, through giving, through how moral you look, through, and this, I think this is incredibly popular today, through what organization or movement you either stand for and are affiliated with or what organization or movement or people you are against and opposed to. In our politically charged climate, people jump to many conclusions based on who you're for, who you're against. That can't save you. All these false religions boil down to you doing something to save yourself. This one just says God helps this much. This one says God helps a little more. But at the end of the day, it's you doing something. I will remind you, beloved, Scripture is very clear. Salvation is of the Lord, not salvation is of the Lord and self. Jesus' name and Isaiah's name, by the way, both mean and translate salvation is of the Lord. The, 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 the word for the Lord and salvation is this way with Jesus and it's this way. I mean, basically flip-flops for Isaiah and Jesus. So the point is, it's God who's going to save. It is God who is going to save. Just like when he shattered the Midianites, he will shatter Israel's current enemies and future enemies enemies they they may appear to have the advantage all of god god's enemies throughout time always seem to have the advantage they have numbers they're better organized they have their yokes their staffs of staffs and rods of oppression their they their system is better established they have history they have tradition on their side they have numbers they're better organized but those things don't ensure their victory verse 5 every not most not some but every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood these are tools of warfare they will be for burning fuel for the fire now what isaiah is alluding to is the fact that that in in after a war after a battle victorious soldiers would often take items from from their fallen enemies be they a a shield or a boot or a a cloak something or a sword something the enemy had that he was trying to use to slay him the victor would take which obviously the enemy doesn't need anymore he's either enslaved or he's dead. Either way, he doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need a boot, uh, a booted, uh, uh, a boot with a nail in it, or or a cloak for battle. And by taking this memento, this token, this souvenir, the victor is reminding himself, and he's remind he he would place it somewhere, maybe in his home, where everybody could see it as they came into the house. And it's a, re- a constant reminder: this is who I am. 
this is what I have done, and this is what I can do again to anyone who tries to mess with me. I'm never going to forget it, and you ain't never going to forget it either. That's what, that's what man did with tokens of his own victory. He, made souvenir, he would take souvenirs and mementos, lest nobody ever forget. But tokens of God's victory, you see this in Judges 9, you see this in Ezekiel 39, tokens of God's victory were to be burned, lest they ever become a stumbling stone for Israel, lest they ever cause Israel to think, my strength did this. I did this. My power did this. Almost as if God wants his people to stop looking to themselves and trying to pull themselves by their own bootstraps and be all they can be. Almost as if God wants his people to, I don't know, look to him, trust in him, ask him what to do, rely on his protection, rely on his provision. Oh, that's, that's radical thinking. Now, this liberation, this breaking of the enemy's yoke and bonds and rods and staff, this is in one way, as well as the increase and, and the making glad and the liberating, this is in one way, it is fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. How are they multiplied? Well, I'll remind you that Israel was added by a significant number of a certain kind of people as a result of the gospel. Who were they? Gentiles. And beloved, the fact that Gentiles were added to God's kingdom, that is good for you and me. You know why? Why is that, Justin? You're a Gentile. Did everyone know that the Lamborns are Gentiles? Got to watch out for those Gentiles. Gentiles, Gentile believers, and you can read more about this in Colossians and Galatians, Gentile believers were grafted into believing Israel. Israel was multiplied. Israel was also <coughs> made glad as Jesus healed people and touched them with compassion. And as, he, as they found peace with God as a result of their sins being forgiven, they were liberated the, the rod and the staff and the yoke of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees were lifted from them as they realized that the dead religion of Judaism can't save. But you know it could save? The atonement found in the cross of Jesus Christ being the sinless, perfect Lamb of God that was offered up. That can save. People were liberated from a dead system that couldn't save by the act of Christ who could save. That was. That would make them glad. That would also liberate them. But there's also a literal fulfillment that looks past that first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. You know, if you look at the end of Revelation, you will find, if I recall correctly, you will find that the Jews are um, kind of outnumbered. They're kind of against the wall. They're kind of in need of comfort and being made glad, and they're kind of in need of being liberated. And what do you see? Uh, beginning in Revelation 19.11 and onward. What do you see? Don't we see Christ 
showing up and liberating them? Don't we see Christ showing up and making them glad that they're not going to perish? As far as increasing them, they're going to look, you know, as they're hiding in caves and in holes and in all the far reaches of the earth, they're going to seem like they're being eradicated. God's, God says that he has reserved 144,000 Israelites from the scattered tribes. They're scattered now. They're going to be scattered for a while, but he's going to retrieve them. And he's going to bring in others, add to their number. Seems like they're going to be increased in the last day. On the verge of extinction and eradication and boom, kingdom, they're increased. That would make me glad. That would that would make me liberated. So there's a, there's a temporary fulfillment in the Gospels, first coming. There's a greater fulfillment in the return of Christ. The light, the, libera- the liberation, and now the part that we all know, probably the part that you were all expecting me to spend the majority of the sermon on, the, the promised lad. The promised lad, verse 6. And... Isaiah here links with his first word for, or you could put because, he is hinging everything that has come to this point. He is hinging it upon this son. This is why this child is so important. Everything that Isaiah has promised thus far, that God has promised through the words of Isaiah, it hinges, it rests, it is on this son. That's why he's so important. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. This light, this liberation, it's not going to be a it's not going to be a revolution, it's not going to be a movement, it's not going to be an idea. It is going to be a person. It is going to be human flesh. He will be a a man will be the means of of the nation's increase and the nation's joy. Isaiah says a child will be born, a son will be given. Now, now are you seeing the relevance to, the Christ, to the, why this is a Christmas message? This is not just any son. This is a king. Isaiah says the government will rest on his shoulders. What are the magi say when they show when what do they say to herod when they show up who where is he who is born what king as a side note that was uh that meant something to herod who was rome's appointed king apparently under his nose when he's not looking someone was born king kind of why he was so upset where's he who was born king of the jews he's gonna be a king he, he said before Pilate, he affirmed, I am a king. That, that was the charge le- labeled on, on, his, uh, on the little placard hung over his head as he was crucified. He is a king. He will rule. He will have authority. He will execute judgment. He will be a leader. 
He will represent the people. Isaiah says the government will rest on his shoulders. The government will be his burden. The rising or falling of the entire nation, the welfare, the well-being, the commonwealth of the people will be his burden. They will rise or fall with him. The buck will stop with him. Nobody can come along and save Israel if he fails. It will be his burden, his prerogative, his place, and his place alone to save God's people. There's no plan B. Isaiah says, and his name will be called. I have to stop right here. This isn't, this doesn't mean his literal name. These, these are, uh, basically adjectives for him. These are words that will describe him. They will reveal him, reveal his mission, reveal what he's going to be like. So these are four pictures of the coming king. The first name picture or word picture is that he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Like Solomon of old who astonished people by how wise and how perceptive and how discerning he was about anything and everything that people brought to him. This coming son, this child, this boy king will offer counsel with unexpected, unprecedented, stunning insight. He's going to know people so well, it's as if he can read their minds and read their hearts. He will know men and women better than they know themselves. Do we see that in Scripture? He will know Scripture perfectly. He will always know what Scripture says about this or that. He will always know what the God-honoring and righteous thing to do is. He will always know what to say. And people will marvel at his wisdom. Many will be impressed. Some will be offended at him because of how much he knows and how much he perceives. Some will even think he's arrogant because his wisdom will be so great. Remember in Mark 6, his own people from Nazareth will will be uh, offended and uh, scandalized. Where did he get this? He, this is homegrown Jesus. We saw him grow up. Isn't that? Aren't these his brothers and sisters? How, where did he get this? He will know how to counsel. He will know how to comfort. He will know how to admonish. He will know when to speak. He will know when to listen. He'll also know when to keep his mouth shut. He will know when and how to apply, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Don't we see him doing just that with the, with the chief priests and the scribes? And he answered them nothing. So, wonderful counselor. Next, he will be called mighty God. Now, again, remember, this is not... This is not going to be his actual name. Some people uh, use this as a proof text and saying, aha, this is proof. He is God. Isaiah says he will be called mighty God. Well, I will remind you that many Jews had God's name in their name. 
like Isaiah. I, I, I could show you a list of all the prophets and many Jewish names and say, show you how God's name is in there, but Charlie uh, set uh, an incredibly hard standard for me by preaching last week for 43 minutes, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not go there. But Jews had God's name in their name, so mighty God is not a proof text to say he is God. Uh, you could also uh, uh, phrase his name like the might of God. And somebody with that name, you would expect them to be going around, uh, be associated with great and wonderful things. You would expect someone like that to to be asso- closely associated or even display the power of God in their ministry and in their lives. You would expect a person with a, with a name or uh, with the adjective, the might of God, to do things, going or walking around doing things that only God can do, and that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Things like speak matter, speak little fish and loaves into existence and feed entire multitudes of people. We see him heal all manners of illness and disease. We see him give sight to the blind. And even the Jews say, we have never seen anything like this. I mean, and they even say, when the Christ comes, could he even do more than this? We see him raise the dead. We see him exert complete, unrivaled, unparalleled, an irrevocable mastery over the natural and the supernatural realms. We see him do the things of God. No wonder his name's going to be the might of God. Third, he will be called eternal father. Doesn't mean he is going to be a literal father. It certainly doesn't mean he is the father. But he is like a father. In Hebrew, fathers were the source. They were the, they were the origin. They were the heads of families. Where, from whom did all Israel descend? Who had many sons? What? Father Abraham. Thanks. Father Abraham had many sons. Abraham was seen as the head of, the, the, of Israel. And so while not physically begetting sons, again, he's not a literal father. He's going to be the head of the people. He will, this son, this child, this king will come to be the source or the head or the origin or the pinnacle of, of a great family amongst God's people. Colossians 1.18, Charlie, what does Colossians 1.18 said? You looked, at, you looked at this last week. He is the head of the church of the body the church he is the beginning he is the beginning sorry i didn't mean to throw you under the bus there he is the head he is the arche he is the pinnacle he is chief he is preeminent this also has the sense that he is close and intimate with his people. And again, this is good for us Gentiles who were outside the commonwealth. 
He will take those who are not his people and he will make them his people and he will treat them as if they've always been his people. He won't treat Gentiles as second-class Jews. He will have a strong, intimate, familial bond with the whole family of God's people. And he will treat them all like they are his own flesh and blood. Hebrews 5.11 says, he is, Therefore he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren. Not subjects. We are subjects. Not vassals. We are vassals. But in a sense, we are also brothers. We are, we are family with Christ. Verse 15 of Hebrews 5. Behold, quoting Isaiah, by the way. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You are a child that the Father has given to his Son. Eternal Father, as his as an adjective for Christ, tells us that he will have a, a real, profound, tangible, perfect, holy love and affection and devotion for those who are his family. And beloved, here's good news. Nothing will ever terminate that familial relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will eternally be your head and your guardian and your protector and your provider. And that's good news. Fourth, prince of peace. Prince of peace. Prince Prince points to the fact that he's a sovereign. We already know that. We already know from Isaiah 7. And, and uh, as Isaiah will tell us in, in this chapter, verse 7, he is the son of David. He's already said the government rests on his shoulders. We know he's a sovereign. We know he's a king. But here we are told something of his kingship. We, Isaiah is describing his reign. He will, his reign will be marked by what? Peace. Remember when Jesus talked about, when, when he was teaching his disciples what kingdom conduct looks like he says don't don't lord yourselves over one another i i came and i'm serving you if i'm the greatest in the kingdom and i'm serving you you should likewise serve one another service and lowliness is the path to greatness and so he is a king he is a prince he is a ruler he is a he's a sovereign who is marked not not by lording his authority over his subjects he is he is marked his his reign is marked by peace that is what he will be known by peace now this, this word for peace five points to anyone who can tell me what the hebrew word for peace is shalom good job shalom in hebrew it you know when we talk about peace, we, we sometimes think of it as it's the cessation of war. It's the, it's the end of hostilities and striving. But the, the Hebrew understanding of shalom, it, it goes deeper. And it has the idea of everything, every nook and cranny, everything being as it should be. You know, we can, with great effort and with great sacrifice, we can we can bring an end to war, but we can still have loads of problems on the home front, right? World War II 
had a lot of problems after that. World War or World War One did. That's what led to World War Two. I do. I, I kind of recall Vietnam and the Korean War having some times of turmoil after hostilities ended. But was there really peace? No. Shalom is where everything, down to down to the jot and tittle of every detail, everything is as it should be, and nothing's out of place. It's not just the fire at your feet that's been put out. It's the fire everywhere that's been put out. Everything is as it should be. And that is a, that is a state that the world has not known since Genesis 3. The world has not known shalom, nor will it know shalom until Christ comes in and establishes his reign that will be marked by shalom. This peace he will usher in at the end of time, when he personally intervenes, he will personally make every wrong right. Everybody will be appropriately judged. There's there's not going to be any unbalanced scales with him. The cursed creation is going to be remade. He is going to fashion a new heavens and a new, new earth. And we're going to have new bodies no longer touched by the cancer of sin. And there will be unbridled, unparalleled, unfathomable peace. And it's all because of his sovereign rule, which is going to be marked by peace. Oh, beloved, that's going to be so good. You, you look around and feel that the world's not at peace, you feel that your own life's not at peace, look forward with longing and faith and anticipation to the peace that he will usher in and that will mark his kingdom upon which, in which, beloved, he has made you a member of. I remember when I was, for so long when I was a kid, I, 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 I felt bad, I felt sheepish. I really, I don't know why everyone wants to go to heaven. I want to, I want to, I want to grow up and have lots of things and, you know, be married and have kids and, 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 and have, you know, have lots of cars and property. I, you know, I want to have a good life and, and then I'm going to go to heaven. Now that I'm a little older, I can see that adulting is hard and life's not all it's cracked up to be and there's a lot more ickiness out there than, than I knew when I was a kid. Heaven looks really good. Amen. Don wants to know, will this shalom that Christ is going to usher in, is it ever going to end? Well, Isaiah answers Don in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Science tells us that the, that the universe is constantly expanding, and it has been doing that since forever or since it was created. I don't know how that's possible, but look what Isaiah says. There will be no end to the increase. You're never, ever, ever going to find a land, a nation, or a molecule that is not under the reign, the sovereign rule of this king. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. And, and you may ask, <coughs> you may ask, well, 
as I'm sure, I mean, this sounds good to me. This sounds good to us, right? Do you think this started to sound really good to the Jews? Do you think maybe they, they wanted, they, they would have asked, which you and I would be asking if we are really longing for this, they'd be asking, what can we do to, you know, kind of help God, God along? What can we do to kind of speed up his messianic timetable? What can we do to help usher in this kingdom? You know what the answer is? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. What does Isaiah say is going to accomplish it? You? Me? What? Who or what is going to accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. What that means is God's concern for his own honor, God's concern for his own name, God's concern that his character and his holiness and his power and his might and his, and his mercy and his grace and his justice and even his wrath, God's concern that he be known and he be recognized and he be understood, his zeal for his own name, that will accomplish it. God will accomplish it. Not because we're so worthy, not because we deserve it. God will accomplish it because he's zealous for his own name. I would entreat you, in light of this gift that God gave to his people, this this promise of God's gift of light and of liberation and of a son, I would entreat you to receive it. It's the sobering, it's a, it's a sad commentary that he came to his own and his own received him not. I would entreat you to make sure you have received him. Receive God's gift of a son. You must receive him to be saved. Simply being in, simply belonging to a biblical church, simply attending a biblical church and serving the biblical church, that's not enough. You must, as Jesus said, he who beholds and believes in the Son will have eternal life. You must receive him. I would entreat you also to rejoice in God's gift. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? No one receives Christ and is unchanged. Rejoice in God's gift. It must, Christ, you, we just saw how good this is. This must have an impact on you if you believe it. So A, you must believe it. B, it must change you. And third, I would entreat you to rest in God's gift. Don't add to it. Don't try to change it. Don't try to improve Christ. Don't try to make Christ something that he's not. Rest in God's gift of Jesus Christ. We're about to sing a song in a minute. In Christ alone. And these words, I I hope you take them to heart. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. He is my strength. He is my song.
May that be true of us here today. And I, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gracious gift of Christ. No better gift could be made. He is wonderful. He is beautiful. He is kind. He is gracious. He is wise. He is holy. He is just. He's compassionate. He is strong. He's humble. He's majestic. He's glorious. And despite everything we think we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have millions and millions of years to learn that we haven't even begun to break the the surface on his person and character. We will have all eternity to enjoy him and to rejoice in him. Thank you for the gift of your son, the good shepherd for lost sheep like us. Amen.